a friend of mine who's an academic said to me, just really don't don't do it. Write an article, don't write a book. <laughs> and I, I never stopped thinking about it all the way through from beginning to end. It was really hard. I think I'll leave it at one. With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope and I'm your host for season five of the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. The podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. We have a phenomenal lineup of guests and I guarantee you'll be taking away plenty of reading recommendations. Well, I'm so excited to welcome Lisa Nandy to the podcast today. Lisa was first elected as the Labour MP for Wigan in 2010. During her time in Parliament, Lisa served on the front bench in a number of roles and is currently serving as Shadow Secretary of State for Leveling Up Housing and Communities. She's also the co-founder of the think tank Centre for Towns, which was set up to ensure priority is given to the viability and prosperity of Britain's towns. Before entering Parliament, Lisa worked for the youth homelessness charity Centrepoint and the Children's Society. In addition to all of this, she's also written a book, All In, How We Build a Country That Works. And I am delighted that she is joining me on the podcast today to talk about the books that have inspired her. Lisa, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's great to be here. We've had to cancel the first time and it's been an epic journey across the country well, today. Yeah. <laughs> so I am really pleased to be here on every level. Well, you've driven down from Wigan today. So I appreciate that. I think that's the furthest anyone has travelled <laughs> Um, especially by car to get here. Yeah, so there's a rail strike on later yes. in the week, which is why I'd, I'm normally found on public transport, but um, not this time, unfortunately. I know that journey well. Um, I take the train from London to Manchester and back again every Sunday, pretty much every Sunday for um, radio. And it can, you know what, it can really vary between two to seven hours each way, depending on what you're going to get. Well, I did think quite a lot about the theme of the book that Mm. I've just done, how we build a country that works as I sat in traffic, staring at a completely broken public transport system and wondering when things are going to get any better. It's something I think a lot about. Well, if you're travelling quite a lot, is, is that a good opportunity for you to get stuck into reading do you have time to read so busy I make a real effort particularly to read fiction Mm -hmm. I've always read a lot since I was a kid but I found when I got elected 13 years ago now that your world shrinks if you're not careful Um, you become very very sort of sucked into the parliamentary system the Westminster bubble you know this minutiae of kind of who's in who's out who's up who's down and the gossip and the rumour mills and the the best way that I found to break out of that and remind myself that there's a whole wide world out there is spending a lot of time at home in my constituency and reading. So I'm often found very late at night wandering around the division lobbies, clutching <laughs> a copy of whatever book I happen to be reading at the time. You love fiction. What what kind of books do you gravitate towards? Um, oh, all sorts. It depends a lot on my mood. Uh, when I was growing up, I read a lot of the classics. Uh, recently, I've been reading a lot more uh, modern fiction. Um, I realised, in fact, for this podcast is probably quite relevant. I realised a few years ago that I wasn't reading half as much 
fiction by women as I was by men. And I think that matters because it colours the view that you have of the world if the stories are all told by men. And so I made a real effort to start reading Far More Women a few years ago and discovered some great writers like, um, well, one of them that we're going to talk about today and uh, an amazing woman called Elif Shafak as well. Yes, who, yeah, who was nominated last year. Um, for, on the shortlist. Oh, she's and yeah, and brilliant. then you know it because of the line of work that I'm in. Then had the privilege of meeting her at an event a few years ago where we were discussing populism. And they say never meet your heroes, but actually she's a good exception to that rule. You know, she's as as lovely and articulate and thoughtful in person as she comes across in her books. And um, so yeah, I read all sorts, all sorts. Yeah. Anything goes. Something so special about meeting an author whose work you have loved because these worlds have been born of their minds and you're right, you sort of don't want to because how can they ever be like these worlds that they've given to you? Um, but it's also a real honour and a privilege to get to understand the mind that it came from. It was a few years ago, one of the best things I ever did was a, a sit down with John McGregor, who's mm. one of my favourite authors. And uh, we it was during the Labour Party leadership contest. I was standing as a candidate and I wanted to shine a bit of a spotlight on arts and culture. And I did a sit down interview with him where we talked about the importance of arts, culture, literature, um, and it was fa genuinely fascinating just to spend a bit of time with, you know, such a creative mind. I think my mind doesn't work quite like that. And I, I'm not particularly creative. I, I used to say I don't have a creative bone in my body, but I, I love, love spending time <laughs> around people who do. It's just brilliant and eye-opening. Yeah, and there's something to be said as well for um, how inspiring those meetings can be. I know you work a lot with young people who might be in more disadvantaged situations and the f the first way that I actually got involved with the Women's Prize for fiction was through their young adults reading list and we, we did a project where we went around youth centres mainly girls um, around the country and we did workshops with them and, and um, they were introduced to, to authors and they were shown that there are possibilities to, to put your story on paper, there are possibilities to become a writer, to work in publishing, to, to, to get a job that can that can give you a, escape but also make your mark on the world and it it's amazing what can what can happen when you meet a writer I remember I grew up in Newcastle and um I think it was David Armand came to our school and did a little talk and I was like oh my gosh people from Newcastle can have a story to tell it, yeah. it it's such a it's such a an invigorating and liberating thing I, we get that with politics as well yeah. you know I, I've been an MP now for 13 years and uh, I complain a lot about parliament I find it a really deadening difficult place but sometimes you forget what a privilege it is to have that megaphone and to be able to yeah. use it to shout very very loudly on behalf of people who otherwise wouldn't be heard and it, the thing that always reminds me is when young people come down to shadow me from my constituency and they you know you look at the look on their face as they walk into the building you know they walk into debates and see people talking about the issues that matter to them and you can see that sense of confidence growing that, you know what, politics is about and for people like me at its best and I could do this. And it's it's the most amazing thing. It's such a lovely thing to be able to do is to open up that world to people. And that's what a lot of authors have done for me as well is to open up a completely different world. Although I have to say, it did give me a bit of false confidence, <laughs> this idea that anyone can write a book. And I did joke the other day that it was probably the single worst professional decision I've ever really? made in my life. What was I the cried process my like? way through it. Oh, no. <laughs> Some maths A level. 
Um, I just, I mean, you know, partly it was time pressures. Yeah, of course. I spent a lot of it writing it on my phone at Crewe Railway Station in between changing trains in the middle of the night. Um, but it was also just that it's really hard to write a book, you know, to organise your thoughts properly, to make a coherent argument over that length of of a sort of medium oh it's so difficult a a friend of mine who's an academic said to me just really don't don't do it write an article don't write a book (laughs) and I I never stopped thinking about it all the way through from beginning to end it was really hard I think I'll leave it at one right well you never know we might get into these books that have shaped you and you'll feel really motivated and inspired by the end having chatted about these these authors that you love so hold that thought I think my my family (laughs) would probably move out if I said (laughs) us I was going to write another one. It's a deal that we're not doing it. But one thing that that did help actually during that time is I carried on reading, read a lot of fiction. And one thing I've noticed about politics is that people tend to lapse into the same way of speaking and writing. You know, we have these horribly technocratic phrases that we use, you know, hardworking families, a step change for working people. And you lapse into it really quickly. And the thing that always pulls me out of it is reading really good writing by people who write fiction, poetry. It just, it's a game changer, really. Well, let's talk about some of that really good writing. Your first bookshelfy book is Mary Barton by Elizabeth Gaskell. This is Gaskell's first novel, and it follows Mary Barton, the pretty daughter of a factory worker who dreams of a better life with the mill owner's charming son, Henry. She rejects her childhood friend Jem's affections in the hope of marrying Henry, but when Henry is found shot dead, Jem becomes the prime suspect and Mary finds her loyalties tested to the limit. Gaskell's novel paints a powerful and moving picture of working-class life in Victorian Manchester. When did you first read this book? Um, I was a teenager. Uh, I'm actually from Manchester originally, so I was born and brought up there until... uh, my mum moved to Bury when I was um, when I was in my mid-teens. So I read it when I was in Manchester, and I just loved it. I mean, it's a great it's a great book. It's really well written. But the, more than that, that I was reading a lot of um, I was reading a lot of literature from that era at the time. Most of it written by men and about men, and often very sort of um, obsessed with aristocratic life. And it was really like a bolt out of the blue to see the history of that time told through the ordinary, extraordinary people that really have made up the history of Britain and particularly through a working class woman from Manchester as the main character. It was just a whole new take on on that that era. And it, you know, I I love... um, Elizabeth Gaskell, I think she's a great, great writer, but it's the fact that she was writing about something, someone from a very different background mm. than you traditionally read about that I, I really loved about that book. And it's part of the reason that I've put it in the in my top five selection for this podcast. <laughs> so it's a book that resonated with you. Yeah, I mean, I'm you know, I didn't grow up in Victorian times <laughs> in the slums. And I, uh, you know, none of that resonated, just that... It it was probably one of the earliest moments where I started to really think about who gets to tell stories and why that matters. This is long before you had the movement to have lots more public monuments to women in Britain. But it was, 
and you know for my generation i think that there was genuinely a bit of a sense that those those battles for equality that they'd you know they'd been fought and to a large extent won which as we've seen in recent years with things like the me too movement it's just completely not the case in fact if anything i think we're rolling the clock back mm-hmm. and and having stories about ordinary working class women and told by women that really matters and so I, it was the first time really that I started to see and understand that and so thank you Elizabeth Gaskell <laughs> for opening my eyes. What was your upbringing in Manchester like? Obviously it wasn't Victorian times. No so uh, I was born in 79 yeah. um, in, and it was a very political upbringing in the sense that my dad's an academic, he's a Marxist, he comes from India, um, politics is very different in India and um, he you know because he's an academic he was always very interested in sort of debate in the house and uh, my mum was a tv producer at granada tv a very male world yeah uh, and broke a few glass ceilings um and it was at a time when the thatcher government had just come to power lots of my friends parents were losing their jobs um the, we'd had the race relations uh, the race riots in moss side um when i was a toddler I don't remember them but my parents were very involved in standing up for the community and getting the real story of what was happening and police brutality out there into the public domain so it was very very sort of political time you kind of had to pick a side you couldn't not get involved um but it was also you know part of the inspiration for some of the book and particularly a chapter on patriotism that I write about in the book because my, my friends are all they come from a completely diverse set of backgrounds. They're working class, they're middle class. They come from every race uh, and different genders. They just, we were really what I think of when I think of this country. And we showed just how possible it is to, you know, for all the divisions and tensions that have been on display in Britain in recent years, that's the England that, as George Orwell once said, lies beneath the surface. This is really, I think, who we are and who the country can be. And so it was really an, an important upbringing, I guess, yeah. from that perspective. Well, in your book, you, you talk about finding strength rather than fear in our differences. It's what makes us unique and special and, and brilliant. How do you envisage that we do this when, arguably with the cost of living crisis, disproportionately affecting people on lower incomes, we feel more divided than ever. Yeah, and I think in lots of ways we've sort of lost the ability to understand one another. That's partly as well because those shared institutions, you know, whether it's the the pub or the working men's club, um, the factory floor, um, or or you know, reading people coming to you know reading the same newspapers, watching the same news. A lot of that has has fallen away over the, the last few decades. And so there aren't those spaces where people come together in the same way as they used to. We're far more self-selecting about what we read, who we see, who we spend time with. And I think geographical polarisation has played a part in that as well. One of the reasons that we set up the Centre for Towns um, a few years ago was because of the EU referendum, which had exposed this great geographical polarisation in the country. Most people mostly in the major cities people were voting remain and only a few miles away in towns not very far from there people were voting in very large numbers to leave that's a lot to do with 
the decisions that we've made about where we put investment, where we create jobs. Young people tend now to move to major cities in order to find work. When I was born in Manchester, it was completely the opposite story. People would move to Bury, to Bolton, to Wigan from Manchester because of the mines, the mills, the factories. And over time, we've seen that change. So you've got lots of people, older people living in some parts of the country, younger people living in others, both with very different experiences of globalisation. And part of the argument in the book is that we need to find new shared institutions and spaces for people to come together. We need to start to rebuild some of those bridges and find a way to understand one another again. Do you think that the relationship between people and the government is is broken do you think it, it can be fixed if it is I, I don't I think it can be fixed but I don't think it will be fixed by politicians lecturing people about getting more involved in politics or coming closer to politics because I think people are deeply political but they've lost uh, to a large extent any belief that politics can really change things this seems you know for a long time I think certainly since the expense MPs expenses scandal um, there's been a sort of sense that politicians are all in it for themselves and political parties are more interested in their own prospects than that of the country. But I think that's really been fueled in recent years with a lot of the scandals that we've seen at the very top of politics. And I, I worry about it a lot. I think during the during the ongoing circular Brexit debates that we had after the referendum, I think that people, I still don't think most most people in the political system realise how close the whole thing came to collapse. You know, in a representative democracy, if people don't feel represented, it just can't survive. And I think that we, we're now in a place where the one thing that could actually change people's lives for the better and change this country for the better, politics, has become thoroughly discredited. It's why I often say that my party, the Labour Party isn't so much fighting the Conservative Party at the next general election. What we're really battling against is that sense that things can't be better, things can't be different. Um, we've got to, you know, we've got to show that we've got hope and ambition for this country, but the job is to make that hope convincing. That's a big ask. It's a big old ask. Well, on the subject of broken politics um, and government, more specifically, your second bookshelfy book is The March of Folly by Barbara Tuchman. Pulitzer Prize winning historian Barbara Tuchman grapples with her boldest subject, the pervasive presence of failure, mismanagement and delusion in governments throughout the ages. Drawing on an array of examples from Montezuma's senseless surrender of his empire in 1520 to Japan's attack on Pearl Harbour, Tuchman defines folly as the pursuit by government of policies contrary to their own interests, despite the availability of feasible alternatives. <laughs> Talk to me about this book. I mean, it, it's quite a book. Um, my dad sent it to me when yeah. I got elected and it sat and looked at me on the shelf for several years before I attempted it because it's quite, it's quite a big book. Uh, and like you say, it's got this broad historical sweep that's quite intimidating. But once I delved into it, I was so glad that I did. She writes so brilliantly. She makes the stories come to life. Mm. But it's also that... Um, you know, lots lots been said about Barbara Tuchman because she's a very well-known historian, but the nuance with which she's able to get across the the points that she's making, she often has a completely different take than anybody else on on the things that she's writing about. And there's something about that, that 
ability to see the world as nuanced and complex, but also to draw out those big themes that I think we could do with a, a bit more of in politics. We often try and simplify things to the point of absurdity because we can't cope with messiness and diversity in politics. But actually, you know, politics is complicated because life is complicated and, um, we, you know, we, sh we should be much more more comfortable with that. I think she also, you know, one of the things for me that I love about it is that I read it at a time when you, things were starting to get quite turbulent in British politics. And I, I was reflecting on the fact that we only ever look back to very recent history for our parallels. If you're someone like me who came of age in 1997, I turned 18 that year, um, we've lived through this period of st relative stability in British politics. From from 97 till 2010, there was a fairly broad political consensus. The political parties didn't feel that they were mm. sort of ideologically hugely opposed to one another. The economy was relatively stable. There was investment going into parts of the country that hadn't seen it for some time and into our public services. I think you could start to believe that that's quite normal. And actually looking back a bit more in history has helped me to realise that that's not normal at all. And what we consider to be normal often really isn't. It's this idea that the history of politics is the history of people making the same mistakes over and over <laughs> and over again. It's a bit depressing once you when realise you, it. When you phrase it like that, but it doesn't necessarily have to because we can learn. Um, in a recent interview, you said our political system must change or die. Can you expand on what you meant by this? I mean, I, I just think that the, this country's biggest problem is that we've written off the talent, the potential, the assets of most people in most parts of Britain for far too long. And so often when I see things that inspire me in British politics, it's what miles away from the world of Westminster or from the, you know, not just from Whitehall, but from the town hall as well. It's ordinary people doing extraordinary things in their own communities, but so often despite the system, not because of yeah. it. And feels to me that we, we need to tilt power back to people who've got a stake in the outcome and skin in the game because if I've the one of the biggest lessons for me of the last 13 years I learned this most of all actually from mums who've been through my constituency surgery who have children with special needs that every single one of those women without exception regardless of educational background, levels of confidence, professional background, they've mastered the opaque systems that surround their kids and they defeat them over and over again to get what they need for their children and they do it because they can do no other. It's what I call the great untapped force in our country, the quiet patriotism that is at work that spurs people on to build things that last and to create and to invest in it for the, the long, long haul. And I think we've just got our political system fundamentally wrong in that so often the, those people fa find the system rubbing up against them when it, they should feel the whole system pulling in behind them when they try to do that. How do you think Labour could define a new political era? I think we we need to harness that sense out there that things are fundamentally broken. It feels very despairing when you put it like that, but actually the, there's an anger out there in the country and it comes not from a negative place. It comes from a recognition in every part of this country that we could do better 
we should do better. Mm. We should be doing better than we currently are. I don't mean by beating other countries in the league tables and, you know, all the world beating guff that you hear from from certain individuals in politics so often. I mean just that there's so much potential in our country and we've written that off for far too long. I think we need to spread power and wealth and opportunity far more widely in Britain and then we would build a country that works to nick the the subtitle of the book um and and i think I, I think the one risk at the moment in politics is that because so much is broken because things feel for a lot of people fairly hopeless I think that we could collapse into this kind of idea that things can't be better. We could retreat and try and play it safe. But it's precisely when it's so clear to people that the economy isn't working for most people, that politics isn't representing most people. It's precisely at those moments where things become change becomes not just possible but inevitable and I think we've got to really step into this moment and seize it with both hands and start to do things differently. If the March of Folly extended a little bit uh, a little bit longer and um, Barbara Tuchman was writing about the last 10 years of global politics how do you think she'd do it? Oh god now that is a really good question and you know I think it's a mark of how brilliant she is that I really don't know Mm. Um, but you know this idea that you, you can sort of step slightly outside of what's happening and look at it with fresh eyes. I think that's always been, you know, it's something that politics is quite uniquely b- badly placed to do because we're so in it of a day-to-day, you know, I mean, I, I wandered into here today to say we've got a statement this afternoon in the House of Commons. It's about the millions of people who've been stuck in unsafe flats since Grenfell, unable to move, their lives on hold. Um, and, you know, that five years after that tragic fire, very little has changed. So my mind is very much on, on that right now. And in, you know, a few hours after that, it'll be on something else. And it'll be on, there's always something happening, this sort of relentless, um, you know, events, events, events. And... It was part of the reason that I wrote the book, actually, is that I wanted to step out of it and be able to see things with a bit more clarity. But I can't claim to have the monopoly on that. I mean, some of the stories I tell in the book are about having spent time with some very creative people who helped me to see things differently, not least Danny Boyle, who, you know, when I said to him the last time we saw that sort of country that I believe in was the 2012 Olympic Games opening ceremony and then it all just seemed to fall apart and we we had the Scottish independence referendum and we had Brexit and we had all these people you know pulling pulling apart where did that united confident global country go and he said to me it's still there it's just waiting for politicians to give voice to it and I think that's you know, I'll leave Tuckman to do the, mm-hmm. the the drawing lessons from recent history, but my job, I think, is to give voice to it. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Looking for a treat to pair with your favourite book? Bailey's is the perfect accompaniment to enjoy either over ice or over coffee. Your third book, Shafi book, Lisa, is my favourite book of all time. It's Half a Yellow Sun by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. In her absolutely masterful novel, 
Half the Yellow Sun. Adichie tells the story of the Biafran War in 1960s Nigeria. We follow a young houseboy, Ugu, uh, the intelligent and beautiful Olana, and a shy English writer called Richard. Domestic discord and complex family dynamics parallel the bubbling tensions of political conflict as Nigeria descends into civil war. Adichie addresses issues of race, class and violence at a pivotal point in Nigerian history. I mean, this is such an important book. It's important to me for very personal family reasons. It won the Women's Prize in 2007. It then won the winner of Winners. That was via a public vote in 2020. So it resonates with our audience. But why is it important to you, Lisa? Um, Well, I came to it late, actually. It was the first book that I'd read by Ngozi Adichie. I've now read everything that she's ever yeah. written. Oh my God, <laughs> once you're in, you're I in. I caught the book, <laughs> yeah. I just couldn't stop. But I came to it fairly late. I didn't know anything about the Biafran War. I don't think I'd actually read any fiction by someone from Nigeria. That has completely changed. She's at the forefront of a whole movement of of young, uh, up-and-coming, and in some cases now very well-established Nigerian writers. Yeah. I mean, the Nigerians really have started to dominate the market in 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 lots of parts of fiction I you know off the back of reading her work I then went and read some you know Nigerians in space which is a sci-fi book um and so you know the the reach is incredible um but it it's just the writing it I I tried to when I was picking my books for this I I tried to sort of think through all the reasons why I love this book, but she just writes better than anyone yeah. around, in my view. She's there's a sort of poetry to it. Um, it's beautiful. It's evocative. You just, you know, the minute you open the book, everything goes away, and you're there in that world that she's constructed. And you know, I need, in politics, I mean, life. I think for most people is pretty tough at the moment, but in politics, I've always found that I need that. And she's she's just brilliant. You're so right. It's poetry. It's philosophy. It's a manifesto. <laughs> it's a, it's history. It, it it gives you the socio political context as well as the the most personal stories. At the same time, she's such a master of her craft. She she is, and she's also then. I went on to to learn a bit more about her and to see. Um, she did this essay a little while ago about why we should all be feminists. Yeah. <laughs> and it really reminded me of, um, there's a great writer in Britain called Afua Hirsch. Yeah. And she writes a lot about race. And um, there's a, she wrote a piece a few years ago where she basically said there's no such thing as not being racist. You're either racist or you're an anti-racist. But if you're not an anti-racist, actively challenging racism wherever you see it, then you're part of the problem. And the Ngozi Adichie essay on feminism, I think it was a lecture originally that she yeah, then published. Yeah, it was a TED, a TED Talk, um, I think. Yeah, that's right. She you wrote see. it into a It's on my shelf and it's, I put it specifically at eye level so I can keep picking it out whenever I fancy just having a little dip in. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I really feel that in lots of ways, my generation dro- dropped the ball on feminism. And I think we're having to remind ourselves of that. I think one of the things that the last very difficult, dark, divisive decade has shown me is that the battle for progress is never won. Mm. That growing up when I did, there was this sort of sense that the arc of history always bends towards progress. 
and it doesn't actually it's for every generation i asked my dad this a few years ago when um because he he did a, a program called the reunion on radio four and it was all the people who'd been the architects of the race relations act coming back together to talk about how they'd they'd done it and it was a pretty pessimistic program because they really felt that a lot of that progress had unraveled and i said to him afterwards well you know what do you do about that? And he said, every generation just has to pick up the baton. There'll be people pulling in one direction. There'll be people pulling in the other. You've just got to hope there's more of you than there are of them. And it, it was really, you know, reading some of her work, her non-fiction work, mm-hmm. had really sort of opened my eyes to that as well. I think the thread that's running through a lot of these books, actually, is that all these people see things at a slight detachment to the norm and the status quo. Eric Hobsbawm once said that as an immigrant, you see life at a tangent to the world. And I think a lot of these authors that I've chosen, actually, without design, yeah. are people who do see things differently. I mean, the, one of the other books that um, Chimamanda and Gozi Adichie has written is has a very sort of stark take on modern America. And I think it's really interesting that that's coming from a Nigerian writer. I don't think you would have the same take necessarily yeah. from an American writer or even, you know, writer from Britain. Um, so, you know, eye-opening stuff. And I always feel like I learn something when I read her books. But most of all, I just really enjoy them. Yeah. On Americana, understanding the difference between Afro-American and black African in America is so crucial and I I think it it takes being in her very specific position to describe it so um, precisely. Um, Do you see feminism as a central pillar of the UK's regeneration? Yeah, yeah. I I think the the short answer to that has got to be yes. Um, But I I come from a family with two feminist parents. My dad was not just involved in the race relations act but he also um was one of the authors of the equal pay act as well and he used to run something called the equal opportunities commission which was a precursor to um the later institutions that we still have now um and so he's always been very active in challenging uh, misogyny wherever he sees it including structurally baked into society in the way that we do things. And my mum, for me, sort of embodies feminism, really, because yeah. she never believed that women can't can't do it all. And I say do it all with, with feeling because it wasn't so much having it all for her generation as doing it all. Um, but, they, but, you know, the, lots of them did. And it's what opened up opportunities to young people like me, you know, growing up when I did it did feel that things were possible and it, that's because of that people in their generation I think but that it doesn't it feels to me that a lot of that progress has unraveled and that is just such a crying shame there's um it was John Stuart Mill who's one of my favorite philosophers who wrote a, a, an essay years and years ago uh, about the great tragedy of writing off half of the population just think of all the things that could have been if we hadn't done that and I think for me that's a lot of my driving mission in politics is that things can be better I know they can but they can only be better if we harness all the assets and creativity and brilliant diversity and complexity out there and politics is just so uniquely bad at doing that. 
It sounds from the way you described your upbringing that you grew up in this house of ideas, um, which is very similar to in this book. So much of the action is set in the house of a professor. Um, your grandfather as well, uh, who was a Liberal MP, um, means that y y you were from a young age introduced to these ways of thinking or opening your mind. Did you grow up thinking that a political career was something for you? No, not really. Um, I, I didn't think it couldn't be, mm. but um, Parliament did seem a world away from the Manchester I grew up in, even though my granddad, like you said, had been a Liberal MP after the war. He fought in the war and then he, he came back and wanted to sort of build the peace. And so he stood for election and served one term. Um, and so, you know, in lots of ways it should have been fairly obvious to someone like me, but actually... I just knew that I wanted to do something that could make things better and I wasn't sure what that was. I ended up, when I left university, going to work as a housing caseworker for a great MP. It was one of my sister's friend's ideas. She just, I didn't know what on earth I wanted to do. I've never been one of these people with a plan, a life plan. I still don't have one now. <laughs> That's um, okay. <laughs> I mean, do need one. <laughs> hopefully something will turn <laughs> up. <laughs> but um, she just said to me, it's a great job working for an MP because you learn about all sorts of other jobs that are out there. And I thought, oh yeah, of course, because you meet lots of people. So I did that and then I worked, went to work for a youth homelessness charity. So Centrepoint and it was those kids really that we worked with at Centrepoint that really sort of shaped me and ended up on this journey of eventually standing for Parliament. They were so ambitious for themselves, for their friends, for their community but so often the circumstances of their lives had been determined before they were even born. You know in this country particularly we're one of the worst countries in the world for your parents levels of background, uh, educational background and attainment and income levels determining how far you can go. And that's an intergenerational cycle that really in the end is all about power. It's who has it and who doesn't. Yeah. And that's why I went into politics in the end, because I thought they're doing their bit. Now I need to do mine and make sure that we build a system that works for them. Your fourth book today is GDP, a brief but affectionate history by Diane Coyle. In this charming and fascinating book, Coyle traces the history of GDP from its 18th century precursors through its invention in the 1940s and its post-war golden age, and then through the great crash up to today. We learn why this standard measure of the size of a country's economy was invented, how it changed over the decades, and what its strengths and weaknesses are. Um, can you tell us a bit about this book? How come you've picked it? How come it's in your list? Okay, so you're looking at me a bit like I've gone mad here. No, but... no, because I, I honestly, I hadn't, I hadn't heard of this, and I, but I also hadn't thought about it. And I was sitting at the table this morning, just just on my laptop, having a little look through, having a little research, and I thought, oh, we place such importance on GDP. <laughs> actually, I have never questioned why, because it is actually a bit weird when you think about it. Yeah. So Diane Coyle, she's a she's an economist. Uh, who was at Manchester University for a long time, which is where I first came across her. And she, she's, ve like, she's very careful in the book to say that she thinks GDP is an important measure. The problem is the way that we use it. Yeah. So we use it really to measure the health of a nation. And as she points out in the book, this is a measure that was built for an era, you know, with mass, mass factories and, and so on, that isn't good at accommodating 
some of the very different features of the economy right now. There's this sort of striking bit in the book where she talks about how um, you, a lot of your European countries decided to add prostitution into their measures of GDP and saw a great GDP bounce. Mm. Uh, suddenly their economies on paper were doing much better. That you can, if you if you cut down a forest, the value of that... Um, is included in your GDP figures, but if you plant a forest, it isn't, which when you think that climate change is the biggest challenge that we face as a nation, as a world, is extraordinary, really. And there's this great Bobby Kennedy quote from one of his speeches uh, when he was running to be president, where he says um, that it can tell you a lot about... Um, uh, uh, it, what what it can't tell you is about the the health of health of our children, the quality of our air, um, the the strength and resilience in communities. He says essentially, it can tell us everything except that which makes life worthwhile. Yeah. And I thought of that quote a lot when I was reading the book. Her her argument is that you need to we need to be smarter about what we measure and how we use measures of success, and. This, it just it feels to me that people like Diane Coyle, that their their work is so important in politics because, for me, reading this book was like someone switching a light on. Mm-hmm. She basically says, look, if you if what you're measuring is wrong, it distorts your picture. But if you adjust the lens, the things that most matter come back into focus. And it was just, you know, once again, I feel like this is the the recurring theme of these and I didn't mean to do it like this. But once again, it was someone just switching a light on and showing me a completely different way of thinking about things, which is what fiction and nonfiction just reading really does for me. Oh, it's good, that quote. And it's so true. It's so true of any situation we could find ourselves in. Um, And actually, another sort of light bulb moment it was when I read that you said this, you said, housing isn't a market. It is a fundamental human right. Of course it is. Of course it is. And yet we place, like we have done with GDP, such totemic importance on things in a very certain way that doesn't necessarily benefit us. Can you tell us a bit more about your plans to help renters, why that is important to you? Um, well, we've been, you know, the, the housing call it a market if you like but the house our housing system is completely broken that for at the basic of any decent secure life is a home and i learned that when i worked with those young people at center point nothing was possible until they had the foundation of a decent secure home that where they could go shut the door and know that they were safe and warm and you know things were going to be okay and i think for most of us who've who've we take that for granted but for a lot of people now in this country that's not a reality at all we haven't built enough social homes we've lost a lot of our council housing stock because it's been sold off uh, and we haven't built enough to replace it we've uh, got the dream of home ownership way out of reach for a lot of people not least because we've got a cost of living crisis and people are making very high rent payments but couldn't possibly save for a deposit and where all this comes crashing down is in the private rented sector where lots of people are now who shouldn't be there people who should be in social housing who can't afford to make their rent payments who are living in 
often very, very substandard private rented accommodation and it's affecting everybody because people are competing for homes in, in large parts of the country. I mean, we're sitting here in London, that you know, this is the epicentre of the housing crisis and um, people are only ever a few weeks away from being evicted through no fault of their own and losing their own home. When we think about private rented accommodation, I think often we think about young people who are just, you know, maybe they graduate from university, they go into private rented accommodation, they're there for a few years, but that's not the reality anymore. The reality is families in private rented accommodation, often very substandard for years and years and years, uh, without the stability of being able to be close to parents and grandparents for childcare, you know, having to move around frequently, so costing their children their school place, all the things that really sustain a decent life and we think that's got to change and so one of the things that I set out recently was how we're going to tilt power back Mm. towards renters in the private rental market give them far greater long-term security in their homes protection from unfair rent increases the right just to do very basic things like have a pet or you know change your decor I mean this these are the little things that make your home your own and right now, for a lot of people, those rights are just way out of reach. Feels impossible, and it, and it shouldn't. Um, you mentioned the environment there, of course, um, planting trees, felling trees. Do you think that reaching our net zero goals um, and measuring the country's health using GDP, do you think those two things can work in tandem? So Diane Coyle, actually, who wrote this book, has done some amazing pioneering work in this field, looking at what she calls the... I think I think that I can't remember how many they came up with. I think it was four or five capitals that help you to measure success. And chief amongst them is environmental sustainability, because if it's not sustainable, it's not it's not working. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, she shows how these these things coming together, whether it's sort of um, tangible capital, you know, in, infrastructure like transport networks that connect you to friends and family and apprenticeships and opportunities, uh, how, how all these these different types of capitals all sort of interplay with one another. That if you, uh, for me, net zero is a, really, is a really good example of this, where if you look at lots of parts of the country, one of the major problems we've got is high streets falling apart. The high street is falling apart largely because the good jobs have gone and the working age population has gone and taken with them the spending power that sustains it. This is felt very, very deeply and emotionally to a lot of people across this country who feel like their whole place that they call home is being allowed to disintegrate and nobody's doing anything about it. Well, how do you rebuild that? You, You get good jobs back into those communities. And where are the possibilities and the potential for those jobs most pronounced. It's in the coastal and industrial towns where the problems are most acute because there are a million jobs on the road to net zero and we should be investing to bring them here. That's about giving young people choices and chances so they don't have to get out to get on. It's about rebuilding the fabric, the social fabric of our communities and it's about tackling climate change. You're running out of time. I've got so many questions that I want to ask you, like so many things to talk about. Every single answer, you then spawn like five more <laughs> questions that I want to ask. We don't have time. We have to move on to your fifth and final book this week, which is so lovely. I'm so happy you've included this. It's The Home, The Hill We Climb by Amanda Gorman. 
President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris's inauguration ceremony was a star-studded affair, but Amanda Gorman stole the show with her poem, The Hill We Climb. Amanda was the National Youth Poet Laureate at the time and the youngest inaugural poet in US history. Tell us about this poem and its significance for you. So I, I love poetry and I read quite a lot of it. I just finished reading um, uh, one of the Seamus Heaney collections that I'd never read before. Um, and I, I draw a lot of inspiration from poetry, especially in, in terms of making speeches, I make quite a lot of speeches and often politician speeches are dire <laughs> and trying to bring I'm them... I'm glad you said it. <laughs> trying to bring them to life, yeah. you know, to breathe a bit of life into them. I find re- nothing does it like reading poetry, but also because the poet has to be so succinct in how they express themselves. It forces you to get to the point and that actually is quite a good skill for a politician to learn or to remember Uh, as well often we say a lot in order to disguise the fact that we're not saying what we mean and so I I wanted to include a I wanted to include a poet and this one this this amazing young woman and this incredible poem actually leapt out at me because I think what she she did really was she took a moment of where it felt like there was a really profound shift happening the handover of power from Donald Trump to Joe Biden um, after I think the most shameful episode in American global politics that I've ever seen you know this is a president who caged migrant children and separated them from their parents who pulled America out of the World Health Organization attacked the World Health Organization at the height of a pandemic who pulled America out of the uh, Paris Convention uh, on climate change at a time when the planet is burning it was a it was a terrible terrible episode and a few years ago i read this book by a guy called tanahasi coates called we were eight years in power about how could it be that all that hope and optimism that came with the election of barack obama could end with the election of a white supremacist to the highest office in the world and i think what gorman does brilliantly in this poem is she takes all that feeling of hope that something better could be on the horizon and she lays it out for you this is the path that could lie ahead but it may not lie ahead and she never dresses up the risk that there is to america and to the world that things could very quickly collapse again into anger and division and chaos and racism and i don't know how someone that young has that much wisdom For me, the importance of what she did when she got up was not just the bit that she's been celebrated for, that she gave voice to the sort of country that America could be. It's that she recognised the very real possibility that it wasn't going to go there. And for me, that's exciting. That's not depressing because, you know, I can't do anything with apathy, but anger, yes. You know, if it has a constructive outlet, anger can lead to real change. And I think, you know, there were bits of that poem that were hopeful, but there were bits that were angry as well, angry at what had been allowed to be, angry that they could go back there. And when she spoke up and and read out those beautiful words with such poise and composure in front of the, the world, it just, for me, summed up exactly where we are. The future is bright, but if it is, 
you know, is there a new world coming? <laughs> to paraphrase Nina Simone, uh, it's up to us. It's all up to us. And that, you know, it's a big responsibility, but it's also quite exciting. I like looking at it that way. When you picked this poem as one of your bookshelfie choices, you said that it was a powerful moment after the hell of the Trump years. And you've mentioned anger there. You've mentioned hope as well. How did you process that time personally? How did you turn your own personal anger into um, constructive action? Um, I think, you know, in all the in all the things that I've been involved with in in and in and around politics, I think what I've learned is that the worst thing is you know, to, to nick that analogy that my dad used about people pulling in one direction or another. And he said, you've got to think of democracy like a boat that you, you know, you've got to get in and row yeah. and hope that there's more of them than you, more of you than them. I, I think the worst thing is not being in the boat. <laughs> it just, fe- that's when it feels hopeless. But when you make those connections with other like-minded people who believe, as you do, that things are fundamentally wrong, that things should be different... And then you start doing something about it. That's when hope multiplies. And I learned that a lot when I was working with refugee and migrant children before I got elected to Parliament. Um, we, you know, we went into Yarlswood Immigration Detention Centre and set of work with the young people there and campaigned to close it down. We went into homes where young people were being left destitute as a deliberate act of government policy with very little dissent across the whole uh, political spectrum because it was a deliberate attempt to starve them and their parents out of the country. Some of the horrors that I saw in this country that I just didn't believe could exist in 21st century Britain gave way to a real sense that change was on the horizon because of being part of that that campaign, of working with those communities and seeing that the, the ambition that they had as well. I guess it's just... It's what sort of drives me and spurs me on, really. In politics, you don't win very often. Often it feels like banging your head constantly Mm -hmm. and repeatedly against the same brick wall. But you have these little moments where suddenly everything changes and you've played a small part in changing the lives of people that you'll probably never even meet. But there's nothing like it. There's no feeling like it in the world. So I just, you know, I love that poem because I think that it really gives voice to that. You said a little bit earlier that you find Parliament often a, a deadening, difficult place. What needs to change to make it a more enriching place to be? I mean, I guess I should say that I, I believe in the power of politics and I don't subscribe to this idea that national politics is beyond broken, that it has no usefulness. If anything, it's the other way around. When I see some of the problems that affect my constituents day in, day out, whether it was the collapse of our local football club that was used as a plaything for big money, people on the other side of the world, whether it's the frequent flooding events that affects people's homes and businesses up and down the country. All of these problems can only be solved by national governments working together with other like-minded national governments to come together to tackle climate change and to deal with, to reassert people over profit and the primacy of democracy over capital so so i believe i believe in politics i just don't believe right now that it is serving the people and when i 
when I, a few years ago, I was ser- serving as a shadow foreign secretary, Labour's spokesperson on foreign affairs, I started to really see how the 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 strain on the political system comes from the fact that people they look at the system and they think well it that that that's that's not deliver it's not even trying to deliver for people like me you know our economy doesn't work for most people I, I think people in this country work harder than i can ever remember i don't remember when i was growing up it being the norm that people had two three four jobs working shifts only seeing their families when they came home to hand over and do the childcare, you know for the next shift that that's the norm for a lot of families across this country and i i think people have to see very quickly that 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 things can and will change and i think they have to see an urgency about that from their politicians and i don't think that the system that we've got does anything like that you know i could moan about the hours and all that sort of stuff but i won't because actually it's a real privilege to be able to 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 have that platform and to be able to make change for people the biggest thing is when you really feel that you're not changing the system that you're part of a system that is the problem that's the thing that gets me down and it's only when i come out of parliament and I go home to Wigan that I really start to feel that I can breathe again. Throughout this chat, what I've loved is how many times you've come back to the strength and the beauty of the people of this country. Um, In this poem, Amanda Gorman called the US public diverse and beautiful. Um, It's inspiring. And it was written just days after the storming of the Capitol. So all things considered, it is so imbued with hope and optimism. How important are hope and optimism in difficult times? So they're, they're the sustaining force, but they're only sustaining if people believe that it can be real. And what I love about the Gorman poem is that she she lays out two alternative paths. So so often in politics, particularly, you know, my party's been in opposition now for 13 years. We are called Her Majesty's official opposition. And I've been I've been an MP throughout all of that. You know, we've I've never served in government. And one of the things that I've reflected on a lot over that time is how actually oppositional politics is. I'm not afraid to disagree with people. And in fact, the clash of ideas, I think, is really important. But the job of parties like mine isn't to be an opposition it's to be an alternative and to give life and voice to that idea that there is an alternative path on offer i know this is about this is the women's uh, prize for fiction but you'd just you know if you'd indulge me with one more bobby kennedy no go for it he's got this he says this thing in one of his speeches where he says some people see things uh, that are and ask why i see things that never were and ask why not and I think that is the job of politics. I think poetry does it better, but hence why I've put this poem in my, my top five and this incredible, inspirational young woman who I think will go on to do amazing things for a long time to come. Well, Lisa, from your top five, my final question to you is that if you had to choose one book <laughs> as your favourite, I'm going to say, because they're all useful in different ways, but as your favourite, which one would it be and why? I mean, I would I would pick Half of a Yellow Sun because... I deliberately included some fiction, non-fiction in this as well, just because, the, the, you know, there's there's a lot of great non-fiction written by women out there and I, I wanted to, to talk about it a little, but fiction really is the thing that I love reading and this book in particular 
the the language, the poetry. You learn a lot from reading fiction, but actually for me, it's as much about the experience as anything else, just for pure unbridled pleasure. And reading Half of the Yellow Sun was about as pleasurable as it gets. I concur. <laughs> Lisa, thank you so much. I'm going to gonna let you run off to Parliament now to make a very important speech. <laughs> thank you for your time. Honestly, really appreciate oh, it. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. I'm Vic Hope and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. <laughs>